um, welcome to um, another one of the series of the Giants in Orthopaedic Sports Medicine. Uh, my name is Professor Leila Bryant from the University of Manchester. I'm president of the of BASC, the UK's Knee Society, and it's my absolute honour and um, privilege to introduce you to Liza Arndt, who is Professor and Vice Chair of the Department of Orthopaedics at the University of Minnesota. She is one of our giants and innovators in orthopedic sports medicine, and it's wonderful to have the opportunity to chat to you today, Liza. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, where were you born and raised, and where did this journey start? <laughs> I was born in uh, Chicago, Illinois, in the city. Uh, I was part of a very German Catholic uh, neighborhood. As you might know, I was born in the 50s and Chicago was very ethnically uh, diverse, but is but also ethnically cloistered. And so we had, you know, the German neighborhood, the Irish neighborhood, the Polish neighborhood. Um, and we went to our assigned Catholic churches, but we were all, you know, very friendly with each other. Um, I'm one of nine children. I lived across the street from a very small park. Uh, that park was our lifeline. Uh, we had a lot of uh, sports and opportunities through uh, the Chicago Park District. So between our big family, our wanting to get out of the house, our parents wanting us to get out of the house, uh, we were frequent, uh, frequently doing different kinds of sports uh, through the Chicago Park District system. So, And where, where were you numbered in the one to nine? I'm the seventh of nine. Uh, my mother uh, and father, uh, we had seven children in 10 years and then two children in 10 years. So I'm chronologically right in the middle of a 20 year span. So that was interesting because I was sort of, you know, I sort of hate to say it kind of got to be both groups of the family. And we used to kid about my, my younger brother being an only child growing up in a family of nine, because by the time, you know, he was growing up, most of the, most of the siblings were out of the house. So. And were there any other doctors in your family? No, there wasn't. We were, a, 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 my father was a white collar worker, the only white collar worker in our parish. Uh, he was an accountant. Uh, we, of my, my of, of our nine children, our nine, my eight siblings and myself, most of them are in math in some way. Math teachers and accountants account for half of the population. Um, and, but my brother was, was pre-med in college and that's what got me thinking about it. But he went on to be a biology teacher, so. And you were at med school in Rochester. Yes, I went to an all-girl Catholic high school in Chicago. They gave a Boston Loam Science Award to the, uh, the, the best science student. That Boston Loam, as you might, uh, some of you might know, is based in Rochester, New York. And so that gave us a scholarship to the University of Rochester in upstate New York. I knew nothing about the school, was not on my list of schools to apply to, uh, but it was hard not to say yes to that kind of money. And it was a very good school. Um, and so I ended up going to the University of Rochester. And stayed for residency. Yes, and I'm just gonna tell a really quick story about, about my years because I think that that's what's important. So I went to college in 71 through 75. And as you might know, maybe not so much in the international world, but Title IX was passed in 1972. Absolutely. And we know this now because we just celebrated the 50th year anniversary of the passage of Title IX. And, pass and Title IX gave equal opportunity to equal needs for all schools and, uh, and, and institutions that got funding. 
and that that uh, from the government, and that permeated many areas. It permeated law, permeated engineering, but the biggest impact that it had on was the athletic departments. And so I was uh, a volleyball player. I'm, I'm short, so I was never particularly good, but I played for four years in high school and I was part of sort of a prodigy team um, in Chicago. And when I came to Rochester, we did not have any volleyball. We had field hockey, I think is our only sport. Um, but, uh, and so I ended up wanting to play volleyball. So I went to a gym class and the teacher calls me over and says, why are you here? You obviously know volleyball. And I said, yeah, but I wanna play. There's nowhere else to play. So she said, well, why don't you help me teach it? So my first year, I helped to teach volleyball. The second year, I helped to run volleyball intramurals in our college. And um, we brought in sort of what was known as the United States Volleyball Association, UVABA, UV, USVBA rules. But that was at this exact same time when I was a sophomore, the Title IX started. And so our school was trying to know how we could, we could uh, fulfill the obligation to have equal opportunity for equal needs. And one of them was to have more female teams. So we did start a female volleyball team and a female basketball team. But the more importantly to, to me and my story is that we had no opportunity for a training room. So at that time, the training room was all male and uh, we weren't allowed to go there. We would go to student health service, which at that time was a bit um, provincial in their treatment of injuries. They'd still put ankle sprains in hot water. And uh, I became a, a student athletic trainer. And that is where my journey in orthopedics started because I think I was pre-med. I, I might've gone into microbiology or pathology, believe it or not, because I kind of like working with the microscope. But boy, when I became an athletic trainer, it opened up this huge world of orthopedics. I got to know my orthopedic mentors who were doctors that were working on the teams. I started doing ankle sprains and taping and looking at hamstring injuries and just all the things that you would do. and we opened up our training rooms, which uh, became co-ed in my senior year. So that's wonderful. And how important has your own participation in sport been to your life and career? Have you did you morph into being the doctor and the trainer, or have you continued to do athletic pursuits yourself? Well, I played volleyball for many years. I've always liked it. My kids play volleyball. My family plays volleyball, which is is uh, and none of us are particularly. You know, we've never reached a level where we played competitively, but even my daughter and my nieces still play on a, on a volleyball league. So that's been fun. I think individually, I've just liked to stay active. And as I grew older, I, I did more of the individual sports. I play squash, I ride a bike, I uh, do cross-country skiing, and I golf. So those probably are my, 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 my sports in my older years. So, And have you ever had a sports injury yourself? I... Uh, did not have a specific injury per se, um, but I've had aches and pains along the way. So it's it's been more degenerative than a specific injury. So <laughs> I know I've that sometimes shapes careers. <laughs> and what about the non-orthopedic influences in your early career? Well, I was lucky to stay. So I went to medical school at University of Rochester. Um, I went I went to medical school there because. I got in and I could, it was a very good school, but I also being one of nine children and having lots of friends in Chicago, I, I honestly felt that it might be better to not have that kind of influence. You know, at that point in time, 
we probably had, you know, 15 grandchildren. I had nieces and nephews and our family's the kind that celebrates everything, birthdays, christenings, confirmations, and, you know, uh, winning a baseball game. And so I thought it better that I stay away from home. And then when it came to apply for res and, and my, and I got to know a great group of orthopedics that to me were, were, were gender blind. They encouraged me to, to go into orthopedics. Um, they, uh, I, I did some work in sports epidemiology with Ken DeHaven. Uh, Dr. McAllister Everts was our chair there. They, it just seemed to me to be just a great opportunity. Interestingly enough, the other field I was looking at was urology, which is also you know, not a, a strong dominance of women, but orthopedics won out. The problem was when I applied for residency and I started interviewing and I really, at that time did want to leave Rochester uh, just because there was nothing to keep me there uh, particularly, but they weren't so welcoming. And for many uh, programs, I would have been the first woman, which probably was better because be some programs, they uh, told me about the woman that started and failed. And so all of a sudden I was in a position to try to have to explain to people why women failed in orthopedics. And so, you know, it was my, it was eye-opening to me. Um, yeah. The other was that they began to ask me about my, not directly about my sexual life, uh, but indirectly about my attitudes towards women, my attitudes towards children. Uh, what if I had a child during residency that would be an impossibility for them to manage? And of course, this is all illegal. Um, but, you know, at the time, you know, nobody, I mean, what, 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 what did I, how could I have done that? I mean, I tried to be either as clever or as, um, I tried to dodge the question a little bit with humor and a little bit with, uh, you know, sarcasm, uh, but it was, it was different. And um, so for a variety of reasons, uh, I stayed at the University of Rochester where I was a known entity. Uh, that was, I think, an extremely good decision. Um, and, uh, but it, you know, it came with a little bit of heartbreak, at least initially, because I felt that, I, I guess it's the first time that I felt that a door had been shut because I mean, even though I was a female prior to that, I just had only welcoming attitude towards my thoughts and, and my participation. And so that's the first time that I saw, and, and the door wasn't shut to me, of course, I went to a different residency, but it's the first time that I felt that I felt that, you know, there were people that really didn't want to think about me in orthopedics. They thought I was either, well, they were, they, they thought that a woman was maybe not strong enough, but I think that the overwhelming sentiment for most was that I wasn't committed. And that if I had a child, I would leave. Or that if I had a child, they, the program, would have to figure out how to, how to manage that. And so, it, so that, that's when I began to have a little bit broader perspective of some of the challenges that many people have, it's not just women, but that many people uh, have as they face, you know, their, their desired career path. And of your mentors um, in orthopedics, who, who's had the biggest influences and who did you try to mirror in your orthopedic practice? Well, I would say that there's many. I, I think that the opportunities that uh, my original residency program gave me was, was invaluable. I also really appreciated that they talked to me about it. In fact, I had a, a conversation with my chairman about women 
having children in residency. Now, at that point in time, I was a chief resident. I wasn't married. Um, but I said, you know, this is an opportunity that you have to provide for people. And I'm not sure, although the woman is the one carrying the, the child, of course, but I think that the, the idea of parenthood is just as critical and important for male residents as it is for female residents. I will I certainly accept there's more complexities around the, the, the pregnancy itself, which can go well or not well, uh, and of course, the, the birth and delivery. But as you talk about parents in, in our profession, I think that we didn't give the men an opportunity to be fathers and husbands just like women wanted to be have the opportunity to be mothers and spouses. And so when I first came to, to Minnesota, I had Dr. Roby Thompson said, you know, Liza, I'm not sure if it's you as Liza Arndt or you as a woman, but you sure have changed the way we see things around here. And I think that women in general coming into our field, and for one, uh, has given the men the opportunity to say, yes, I, I wanna go to my kid's baseball game that happens to be at 3.30 in the afternoon. And I might cut my clinic short and I might cut my OR short. This was not done in my residency. This was barely done when I started. And I know now, you know, people just smile and say, well, of course, of course we'll do that. But this was not something that, that surgeons did. And, and so I think that there's been an extremely positive effect. And I think the men themselves have wanted it too, it, it's been an upsurge in saying that, you know, quality of life, family is important. But I think that that allowing women in the field did help to crystallize that in the in the minds of everybody. And so I'm so I think that to kind of answer your question, I think there's been many along the, the way, but I've always enjoyed the opportunity to have an open discussion with my 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 colleagues, my peers, you know, even my partners. I mean, you know, I I when I had a problem, I, I went to them and I said, you know, like, how are we going to handle, even, even when I got pregnant, I got pregnant my first year in practice, we had no maternity leave, pregnancy wasn't covered in our disability policy, thankfully I had the foresight to, to carry my own until I was sure that it would cover pregnancy, um, but I had to be, I, I, too long to go into, but, you know, but we didn't have it, so we had to kind of write our own rules. And so eventually, you know, I was the first woman, I had a child, I was the first woman to have a child in uh, surgery in our entire school, we had two women in surgery, and I was the first to have a child so we had no policy for um, surgeons, not that they're different than medicine, but we had to have a little bit more complexity about how to manage the OR, how to manage postoperative care, etc. And so, you know, I went to my partners and we kind of collectively had this. What was interesting to me is when I was in residency, we did have one person break a tear of their Achilles tendon, so that took them out of the OR. We had one person with a sort of a bad fracture. We had another person that, that contracted um, hepatitis uh, and fully recovered. But we did have these things that I saw in men that were, yeah. were unexpected and, and had took them out of the OR. I thought I, for a while, and I saw how practices were managed. So I thought, well, for most people, pregnancy is at least a little bit more a little more controlled. You can't exactly control any complications or your delivery date, but we have an idea. So we, we, I was able to have these discussions and then that morphed into discussions with residents. And now I'm happy to say not only do we have a maternity, a paternity policy in our residency, we have a policy for 
um, adoption. And now that policy has been adopted throughout our medical school. And so it was really the orthopedic program led by myself and Ann Van Heest uh, that has, um, that, that really sort of crystallized those policies. So that's great. Well, that's a, an amazing achievement in itself. I mean, as female orthopedic surgeons, I think we have, and we are still making quite great strides forward. And um, just having role models like yourself has a huge influence, but we still, we're 50% females going into medical school. And so the, the best and brightest brains are 50% female, and we still got a vastly lower percentage women going into orthopedics. Um, how can we tap into the best talent available for our profession? Well, as you know, uh, there are programs to get women involved in sort of the STEM sciences in general. I do think that there is a there's a tendency to not encourage women in those fields. But when you're talking specifically about medical school to orthopedics, I think that they just need to know a couple of things. One is that you can have a social life. You can get married and have children. Uh, it's a little bit longer of a journey. And I think it's that longevity of the journey that scares some people into going into professions that have a shorter journey. But I do think with the work hour restrictions that are in most uh, uh, countries now, it's easier. I think that many of the medical fields have morphed into being not so short of a journey anymore. You know, you go into medicine, then maybe you go into GI, then maybe you go into heptology. So, I mean, I think a lot of the subspecialties in medicine have been long journeys as well. But I think the most important thing is that they see that people can do it, that they can be married, uh, have spouses, um, have children if that's what they choose. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's easy, but I also don't think it's hard. And I also feel that um, it's not that easy in, in any field. And it's just something that you have to work out with you and your spouse and your partners. So for me, it's really an open and talking environment. But that, I think we just need more role models and we have to be open to talking about the challenges, both the positive effects of it and the negative. Liza, your um, research and publication record is uh, very impressive. And a lot of your um, publications reflect your clinical practice. Um, and has that interest, particularly in um, patella instability, been born out of the sports teams that you look after, in particular the women's sports teams? Yes. So uh, again, uh, not to, to make a, a short question into a long story, but I will say that my first, my first real interest was, so I, I went into the training room and at that time, again, it was 70, it was, it was 80, it was 86, it was 1986 to 89, that, that ballpark. I was struck by a couple of things. Many of our athletes had dysmenorrhea or amenorrhea. We had a ton of stress fractures. We didn't really know how to treat them. And I happened at that time to help with both men's and women's basketball. And the men's basketball team hardly ever had an ACL. And we certainly had no people with ACL injuries in high school on our teams. At that time, our men's team was better than our women's teams. But nonetheless, women's had more ACL injuries, but they also came in. So even the people we were recruiting had one, two, sometimes three ACL injuries and reconstructions. 
So the first thing that I got into was stress fractures. I got a little bit more into bone health. I did some studies on, not studies, these are all clinical studies. I, I looked at how you could progress if we could find that. And also the MRIs were just coming in. So with our radiologists, we looked at a way to image stress fractures. And then we thought if you had low grade injury, could you you know, train them in a low grade to get back to, to high grade? There was some suggestion of that in a rat model. And there was some suggestion of that uh, through the Israeli army that was doing that same thing, Chisholm, looking at bone scans. So that was my first group of people. Then my second cohort was the ACL. And I was very fortunate to work with Lars Engelbretson and the Norwegians in looking at all their intervention studies. But getting to the core of this, all of these things that we're looking at, functional valgus knee, uh, our poor body mechanics, all of which we found in ACL injuries, I found them in all of my female athletes just about, but in particular, my patellofemoral athletes and my runners. So, you know, my runners that came with hip problems, with pelvic issues, SI joint dysfunction, all of it, they all had these sort of just really funky body mechanics. So I began to think a little bit broader. I also think at that time, you know, we had, it was sort of a black box. We didn't know much about the hip at that time. We um, nowhere near what we know now. And we sort of, sort of loosely correlated the hip with the, the patellofemoral joint. So I thought that the, the ACL, the treatment of ACL was well managed by our orthopedic world. We've had great people working on intervention, which we didn't have really that kind of facility at our institution. So I kind of got into patellofemoral because nobody else wanted to in a way. And I kept seeing these patellofemoral problems. And I, I kept asking like, what, why are we seeing them? You know, you've got all these funky body mechanics. What is that related to? We've got this funky anatomy. What is that related to? And I really didn't find, I mean, that's really why I looked to Europe. I looked to the Lyon group and looked at their, you know, the menu a la carte from the Lyonnais school that looked at anatomic factors for why people might have patella problems, both instability and arthritis. And that was really like, you know, wow, this is great thinking. So that's how I got into a little bit more broad-minded. So that got me in the patellofemoral joint and I, I just found my niche. I, I, I love the, 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 I love the discipline. I love the thinking about it. I think that it's just such a small little bone and such a crazy little joint, uh, but it's really hard to study because it's more of a dynamic joint, not static, um, which some say that the ACL is. Um, I think that there's, there wasn't at the time very many people looking at it. I was, it was curious, and I think it was more popular in women, although some of the studies show you know, that they're uh, more even in regards to uh, the, the injury of a patella dislocation, but we clearly have more dysplasia, we have more patellofemoral arthritis. And so I, that's what, what got me into it. So it kind of stemmed actually from my ACL thoughts, and then it stemmed into patellofemoral, and that's just when I hit my stride, so. And you've done some work as well on prevention of these problems. Well, it, with, with Lars Engelbretsen and, and our Norwegian counterparts. And so, you know, I would say all of the brain trust in that you know, came from the work that the uh, the Norwegians were doing, and I was I was fortunate to have Lars Engelbretsen as a partner for five years, and then when he went back to uh, to to Oslo, uh, I was able to you know sort of tap into that that excellence. So yes, we we have, and I've talked about it, and I've looked at various factors, but as a prevention program, the credit goes to other people for sure. I'm I'm benefiting from their knowledge, so. And right now, how many sports teams are you looking after? What's the makeup of your practice? Um, 
what does that look like now? Because you, you, our practices all morph and they all go in the direction of your interest. So where does Liza sit now? What's the makeup of your practice? Well, I started being a sports surgeon, which was shoulder and knee, uh, but I had great shoulder surgeons where I worked and I realized that most of my interests were lower extremities. So I quickly morphed to a lower extremity surgeon. And again, as, as a hip, uh, we just didn't have that much in, in hip thinking. So I sort of became a knee surgeon, but I, I ended up becoming a lower extremity person. I did knee, foot and ankle for quite so many years. But then, you know, as foot and ankle became larger and more complicated and knee as became a bigger part of my practice, I concentrated on the knee. So I began to do knee a little bit more of the European model, sort of from cradle to, to, to grave, so to speak. Um, and that was the bulk of my career. As, my, as I age, and I'm not a young woman anymore, uh, I gave up ACL, quite frankly, about 10 years ago, partly because I had such a robust uh, patellofemoral practice, and I had many partners, very capable partners that uh, could do the ACL work. And I stayed with the total knees, partly because I really like that population, partly because your patients age with you, and partly because there's so much of it. Uh, you know, I mean, so we, we, you know, we just needed people in our institution to continue to do uh, knee arthroplasty. So right now I do just patellofemoral and knee arthroplasty. I still do osteotomies. Uh, but that's really my practice. And I will retire soon from surgical practice, except for to do some high complex patellofemoral. Uh, so that really is the bulk of my practice right now. I see, I still see very complicated patellofemoral problems and I, I still enjoy them. So it's hard for me to give them up. One of those things, the more you look for, the more you'll find that may need to be addressed. That is true. That is true. And Looking back now on your long and distinguished career, um, is there anything you'd tell your younger self? Well, my younger self, that's, I thought you were gonna say, what do I tell younger people? That's a different, slightly different question, but I will answer both. Younger people, I just wanna say, if you have a thought, if you have a curiosity, if you have a question, try to drill down on that. If I never thought about why women have more ACLs than men just from looking at a team, then I tried to find a database that would help prove that. If I didn't say, why do we move the tibial tubercle over? Like what me measurements do we use? Like, why are we even doing that? Where's the science behind that? All of these, everything that I've ever thought about just started with, with a thought. And I think sometimes we're not, we're afraid to articulate those thoughts. And so you have to try to put yourself in an, an environment where you can freely entertain those thoughts to a group of like-minded people, but also you have to receive their thoughts in the same way. So if somebody comes to you with a, a thought that seems a little bit out there, you know, encourage them because all of these ideas that I had, somebody thought was a little bit out there at one point in time. And so I think you just have to have a group that encourages that kind of discussion. If I had one thing to tell my younger self, I think that I would say, uh, even though I have a wonderful home life, I have the same husband, uh, two children, and my first grandchild. Woo -woo. Um, I think I wish I had more, I, I had spent more time with myself. You know, I used to always say, you know, my patients come first, which is, was true. My family came second. My friends seemed to come third, and the fourth person was myself. And so I, I just wish that I had 
I mean, I, I'm happy where I am now. I'm happy with who I am, you know, mentally and physically. But I think that that the struggle was always, I always thought of myself last. And I thought that that was selfish of me because I because it was my decision to become a doctor, not my family's. It was my decision to be where I am, you know, not my, you know, my husband's. And so I had to be the one that had to take the brunt of that. And so I always thought of myself last. And I wish that I had spent a little bit more time on having fun. <laughs> I hate to say it. Uh, so that's what I would say. But now I think that it's a little bit different mindset. I think that people give you a little bit of leeway to to have a to have a, a life outside orthopedics. But I've also very much enjoyed my travels. I mean, I just have a wonderful international orthopedic community and which we've missed each other during COVID. Um, but I, I will say that I, I just, sometimes I think of some of my closest friends as people I only see three or four times a year. And I'm sure you're, you're the same way. Uh, but you know, Leela, but you, you have like-minded thinking, you keep up with each other by some Zooms and some emails, but it's really, it's those kinds of relationships that I think I could have never gotten if I didn't go into academic medicine. And so for that, I'm very grateful. So. Oh, it's wonderful. You, you absolutely right. When you find your people in the bar to speak freely and bounce ideas off at a conference, that's just wonderful. And I think you're absolutely right about the attributes of what makes a successful surgeon about the, you clarified that it's just the curiosity and the freedom to, to think and explore ideas. And I guess out-of-box thinking is easier when you stand outside the box. Um, <laughs> but um, I think when we look at ourselves now as mentors, I think it's easy to um, mentor with kindness so that those ideas come forth. Um, that's a very wonderful statement, yes. Um, so people, I think if we have uh, any contribution in academic terms, it's to, um, as mentors, it's to encourage those ideas and not dismiss them, but encourage um, that curiosity as well as the empathy of the, for the patient's condition to see if we can push the boundaries a bit to um, explore how to do things a bit better. Um, so again, it's uh, with mentoring again, now we are in that position where we're trying to mentor the next generation of giants in orthopedic sports medicine. Um, any, any thoughts about your tips for being a good mentor? I think mentorship is hard. Uh, we, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna use another word too. I'm gonna use the word sponsorship. Because a woman said to me, I will say who it is, Joe Hannafin said to me, who, as you might know, was the first woman sports medicine physician, uh, formerly at HSS in New York, and she uh, was our first female president of AOSSM. And she said to me a few years ago that there have been many men who have mentored us, but few have sponsored us. And I think that you know, mentorship in academics is uh, frequent. Uh, I think that, but, and I think that we, the mentorship and educating people is uh, closely aligned, but not equal. But I think this word sponsorship is, 
means that you take a chance on somebody and bring them along and offer them opportunities that you believe they'll be good at. Now, and, and, and again, sponsorship and mentorship can go hand in hand, but what I see is that very few women are included in the group. So you, you make an ICL and you have a panel. You tend to go to your friends, they may or may not include a woman. You tend to say like, who's gonna run a course? Who's gonna write a book chapter? Who can I bring on? Uh, we, and then women themselves have to reach out to, to mentors or to, who could be sponsors and say, I, I would like one day to be a chairman. Um, I want to maybe have some building blocks to go to a chairmanship. What do you think are those blocks and can you help me with opportunities that you believe that I will be good at? Or can you suggest a skill set that you think that I that I may be deficient in that that I that would help me towards my ultimate goal? I just don't think we're used to having these kind of conversations. And so what I would say is we have to, I think we have to think more concretely. It's very hard for people to say, you, you know, you could do this better. I think in the operating room, it's easy to say you don't have you, you need a different technique to cut the skin. You're not tying your knots correctly. But I think that we don't have that skill set. And how do we deal with patients? How do we deal with people? How do we deal with our peers? How do we deal with controversy? How do we deal with challenges? And I think that we look to people who are to do it well, even though we may not know what steps they're doing. So I really do believe that we've got to try to, to grab people and women in particular, but you know, grab people and say, you're really good at this, but you're, you could be better in your communication skills or you know, it, you're, I love your directness, but I think that's what people said to me. I love your directness, but you're offending people in the way you're doing it. And, and what would I say in my typical, you know, like in your face thing, like who cares? You know, it's me, but then, you know, I softened. And I said, no, it's never been my intent to hurt people. And it's never been my intent to put people off. But I just found the only way early in my life, the only way to be heard was to be more aggressive. And I think it's interesting, the words that you use, Leela, where we should mentor with kindness, because I do think that ultimately that's what we need to do. But many women, and particularly women in my country and in my generation, we, were, we just got where we were by being hard. And, and by being aggressive, it's the only way that we could be heard. And I, I, spent the, I spent the first half of my life being aggressive and being heard, and I spent the second half of my career trying to soften it and still retain those good parts. And so that's where, I mean, I, I guess when you ask the question now that, that I think about it, what would I say to my younger self? You don't have to be, you have, you have different ways of being heard. You know, don't be quite so aggressive. Try to, try to get your, your thoughts across without being cynical without being disrespectful, without being um, demeaning. I guess that's the word I'm really looking for. Uh, because when you have more knowledge than somebody else, oftentimes that transmission of knowledge can be demeaning to the person that's trying to acquire it. And so I think that all of these things come to play. And I think we've got to be really sensitive to the people that are coming up and trying to attain these skills, both knowledge skills and people skills. And so I guess I'm kind of going a little bit off off the off the map here, but I, I do think that these kinds of things are important, and that's probably what I think we need to say: sponsorship, grab, grab people, bring them along, use your influence, and maybe bring that person in the corner that might be very good. Maybe bring them out a little bit. Yeah, you've. I think you've clarified that. That's a brilliant way of putting it. Get the person in the corner, and that could be male or female. And we have 
come through a profession where being super ambitious and putting yourself out there all the time is the norm. And um, you saying you were labelled as aggressive, well, that might have been forthright and dynamic if it was coming from a man. So, and that's leadership yeah. skills as well, right? So um, we've got to be careful how we label these things. Agreed. Depending on who is... Um, on, on who is expressing these qualities or or not um so that i mean you're ab absolutely right so it's the you've got to tap the shoulder of the person in the corner that is capable but may not be pushing themselves forward would you agree yes yes and, and we have to be open to that idea and they have to be open yeah. to that idea as well yeah i think sometimes all it needs is someone in senior to say you can do this and not only can you do this you should do this yeah. and I think often that is pushing yourself forward into leadership positions and um you know into the um committees and um presidential line of societies and and leadership in our profession uh so um yes you you you've done all that and shown um in quite an amazing way how that that can be done does your non-medical family understand the magnitude of what you've achieved in your career? Well, I, I think so. I mean, I was just inducted into the AOSSM Hall of Fame. My husband came with me and was a bit teary-eyed through all that. He's always supported me. I wouldn't be where I am. But I, my, my son said something to me once that has stuck with me. He, my son is in finance. My daughter is a in, in medicine, but not a physician. She's a hospital administrator, even, even harder. Um, but my son said to me once, mom, I may not want to be a doctor, but you come home every day and you like what you do. You're happy. I'm nearing my seventh decade of life and I still enjoy what I do. He said, what I want for myself is to have a career that has give, given, that gives me the same fulfillment that your career has. He said, you've always, you always have positive things to say about your career and you always want to get up and go to work. You know, and that's pretty cool from your son that knows how much work you've put into it. The other thing happened when he was in college. Um, he said to me, mom, did, did you, did you travel a lot when you were, when you were younger? And I said, yeah, we did. And he goes, funny, I don't remember that. And what, because he was with a, of another friend who's, parents whose mother was actually in, um, in, in business and she traveled a lot. And I said to my husband after that, I said, we just tried to surround our kids with like a loving relationship. Even if we were traveling, we oftentimes didn't travel together, which was a little bit you know tough on our relationship, but better for our children because we always had a, 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 a someone at home. And I just thought in the long run, you know, it's just so great that your kid doesn't remember that, you know, you left them at times and traveled. And this was when he was in college, not just a little kid. And so I think that um, I, I, I think that we have to, uh, I, I think my, my kids have, have not wanted my life, but they very much appreciated my life, so. Well, that's wonderful. And um, we as an orthopedic community appreciate your career and your example. So thank you very much for the opportunity and being so open to talking with us. And I really appreciated our conversation. 
And thank you to Isakis. This is a great honor and um, I'm very appreciative of it. And thank you, Leela, for your time. Thank you.